you grab hold of a Bible this morning and open your Bible up to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapters 33 and 34 this morning. Exodus chapter 33 and 34. On Christmas Eve, we're going to continue in our series on the attributes of God, trusting that we will see more of God, especially as it relates to Christmas. So Exodus chapter 33, we're going to start reading in verse 12, and then we're going to go into chapter 34, and we're going to read to verse 9. Hear the word of our God. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If... Now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord. Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that we can open up and read your word. We do not need to be confused about who you are and what you are like. You make it plain and available to us. 
And we ask this morning as we look into these two chapters of Scripture that you would open up our hearts, you'd open up our minds, you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might see you for who you are. We plead with Moses, would you show us your glory? For we want to see you. We pray this in Jesus' name, trusting that you will do this for us. Amen. Well, it should have all been over for Israel. The whole lot of them, Israel's leaders, and not just Israel's leaders, but the the common folk had done the unthinkable. In previous chapters, they broke covenant with the Lord. And as you think about what had happened in the book of Exodus, in the chapters before we read, no one word describes the evil of their actions. We could say they, they committed treason against the Lord. We could say they were faithless and disloyal. We could say they abandoned and betrayed the Lord. We could say they acted with duplicity. And such were their actions that they showed that they were indeed a, a false people. And let me just remind you what happened before the text that we just read. So going back to the book, the beginning of the book of Exodus, Israel was long in bondage and they were crying out and they were groaning to the Lord and the Lord heard them and he remembered his covenant with their fathers and so the Lord saw their pitiable estate and he had mercy on his people. So what did the Lord do? Well, he stretched out his mighty right arm and he, he thrust his people out of that dark and sinful land and he did it by doing signs and wonders. And then he split the sea in two, and Israel walked through on dry ground, and then the Lord collapsed the seas and destroyed Pharaoh and his hosts. Israel was then hungry and thirsty, and they longed for bread for their stomachs, and they longed for fresh water for their mouths. And again, the Lord saw their pitiable state, and he had mercy on them. And so the Lord did what? He rained down bread from heaven on them and he sent quail and he, he filled their stomachs with meat and then he made bitter water sweet and, and then the rock was struck and, and fresh water came out of the rock for the people of God. And we keep working through the story and then we see in an act of even greater kindness and mercy, the Lord came and descended down upon a mountain and it quaked with with fire and glory and wonder. And there the Lord spoke out of that fire and wonder and he proclaimed glorious words over his people. Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 through 6, the Lord says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so what did Israel do in response? Well, they rejoiced, they ate and they drank, they spoke words of affirmation, they said to the Lord, we will keep your covenant and we will walk in your ways. Blood was sprinkled upon them. But as we keep reading the story, which we must do, it becomes obvious that their obedience didn't take root deep within their hearts. We read the story and we find this people saved, but grumbling and grumbling and moaning and complaining. They complain about the Lord's care for them. They complain about the Lord's leaders over them. And then they resisted the Lord and the Lord's leaders. And then they did the unthinkable. Psalm 106 puts it like this. They made a calf at Horeb 
and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And as we put all of this story together, we should say this, it should have been over. Just think about the Lord. He extended kindness after kindness to these people, mercy after mercy. He showed such patience to these people, dealing with them. And then in this act of treachery, they turn on the Lord and they spit in his face and they go their own way and worship how they want to. And as we think about it, the Lord, in his justice, could have divorced them right there on the spot. Why? They committed gross adultery against the Lord. The Lord could have come and he could have destroyed all of them. They had committed high-handed treason. The Lord could have abandoned them right there on the mountain. But here's the thing about all of this. The Lord didn't do any of that. The story wasn't over. And the question we have to ask is why? Why isn't the story over for Israel? And one answer we can give as we think about it is Moses. If you remember the story, Moses stood in the breach and he he pled for Israel. The Lord was angry with Israel and and Moses went to God and he, he pled the covenant. Exodus 32 verse 13, Moses says, Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. Moses is pleading, don't you remember your covenant? And then Moses goes and he pleads God's reputation. Exodus 32 verse 12. Moses says, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses is arguing, what will all the people say about you, O Lord, if you destroy these people? And then Moses pleads with the Lord on the basis of his own life. Exodus 32, 32. Moses says, But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have have written. Moses is saying, if this isn't going to go forward, just kill me. And as we think about this, all of this is important. All of this is key to understanding Israel's story. But none of these answers ultimately answer our question of why. Why did the Lord relent? Why did the Lord forgive? Why does the Lord continue on with Israel? And we find the answer when we go to Moses one more time and we listen to him one more time. And so Moses has already pled the covenant. He has pled God's reputation. He has pled his own life. And now he makes one more plea with the Lord. And we read it in our text. Chapter 33, verse 18. Moses prays, please show me your glory. What is Moses wanting here? Moses is wanting to see the Lord for who he is. He wants to know what the Lord is like. Show me your glory. And so the Lord grants his request. Because no one can see the Lord's face, the Lord's glory. The Lord tucks him in a cleft of a rock and covers him with his hand as he passes by. And he shows him his glory in just the back of it. And then we get this awesome scene. Chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And it's here as the Lord displays his glory by proclaiming his name to Moses that we finally get the answer to our question. Why does the story continue? Well, because of this, who the Lord is. He is merciful. He is merciful. So here's our sentence for this morning as we continue on studying the attributes of God. God is merciful. God is merciful. And as we think about this sentence, this doctrine, as we open up our eyes and look at the whole Bible, this is a doctrine that holds together and supports the whole storyline of the Bible. Post-Genesis chapter 3, everything is supported by and depends upon God's mercy. Just think about the whole storyline of the Bible. God gives the promise of a serpent-crushing seed. Why? because of his mercy, and then God preserves a line of of godly men because of his mercy, and God calls Abraham and rescues Israel and gives judges and saviors and raises up David and makes an eternal covenant with him, why? Because of his mercy, and then God gives laws and promises and prophecies and hope to his people, why? Because of his mercy. And we keep going. The virgin conceives a child and the word becomes flesh. Jesus goes about Galilee preaching and teaching in the power of the Spirit doing these great deeds. Why? Because of God's mercy. The Son of God suffers and dies. Why? To show forth the tender mercy of God. And then God raises up his son from the dead and he secures for his people an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And God keeps us by his mighty power for that inheritance, guarding us day by day through faith. And God does all of this by and through and on account of his great mercy. The whole Bible is about God's mercy and the Bible makes sense only because of who the Lord is, a God merciful And so all who taste God's mercy praise him for his mercy, telling everyone about his incomparable mercies, rejoicing over the compassion that they have tasted in the Lord. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so God's people learn to trust God, relying always upon his rich and boundless and eternal mercies. Their hearts are always grateful, knowing that God's mercies come without cost or price. They come without requirement. They could never be earned, but they come freely to you. Even more, God's people crave for God's mercies, realizing that they live upon God's mercies and that they always need more of God's mercy. And so they cry out. You remember that scene in the Gospel of Mark. Blind Bartimaeus is is crying out and the people are shushing him. And all of God's people say with that blind beggar, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. God's mercy. That's what the Bible is all about. And we are God's people and this doctrine should taste uniquely sweet to us. God's mercy. It's our life. As we think about this doctrine, it's also a doctrine that stands out unique as we compare it to all the other doctrines that we have learned and studied about in this series. And it stands out unique because of this. God is not merciful to himself. Just think about all the other attributes we have learned in this series. We learned about omniscience and what was the the principal thing we learned? We, We learned that God knows himself perfectly and completely. God is a God of light and knowledge. We learned about God's holiness. And what is the heart of holiness? God's perfect devotion unto himself. And we learned about God's eternity. 
And what is that? It's God's perfect possession of his boundless life, past, present, future. But here, mercy is different. God has never been merciful to himself, and he never will be. God's mercy is something that he only communicates to unworthy sinners. So here we can ask the question we ask every week. Well, what do we mean by this word mercy? We've repeated again and again and again, but what is God's mercy? And I think two words help us understand God's mercy well. And those two words are these, pity and power. You might recognize those words because they come from an old hymn. If you know Joseph Hart's hymn, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy, Joseph Hart gives us this verse, which I think perfectly describes God's mercy. He, he gives us this line. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. What is mercy? I think it is this. It is pity and power at work for God's people. So let's just work at that for a moment. Let's start with the word pity. This is a word we all know by experience. Think about a mother. A mother looks at her children. The child is crying. The child is hurt. The child is in in trouble. And what happens? The pains, the troubles of that child draws out the sympathy and compassion from the mother. The mother pities her children. Isaiah 49 verse 15 says this, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she would not have compassion on the son of her womb. Or another example, as you drive around town and as you observe the homeless, you see their dirtiness and their hunger and their plight. What happens? Something happens in your soul, deep within your heart. There is this feeling of pity. Their plight strikes you and elicits something from you. And sometimes we feel pity so strongly that we begin to share in the misery of others. They're miserable, and what happens to us? We become miserable ourselves. We begin to weep with those who weep. We feel weighed down and troubled. Sometimes we see someone's trouble and we feel it so deeply, we ourselves are overcome with trouble as well. So we know what pity means for ourselves, but what does pity mean for God? Well, it means a few things. First, it means this. God does not close his eyes from the needs of his people. It means that God observes, and not only observes, but he knows all of the troubles of his people. And so he knows our sins, every single one of them. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our suffering and our trials. He knows our temptations and our griefs. And the Lord testifies of his perfect knowledge of us. Isaiah 49, verse 16, the Lord says to his people, Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands, Your walls are continually before me. What is the Lord saying? I I know you. What you're experiencing is not distant from me. So it means that God does not close his eyes from us, but it also means something else. It speaks of God's posture towards his people. Our God's affections for his people are not cold, nor are they indifferent. His attitude is not that of a a lazy father who wants to sit on the couch watching the football game and his kids are crying out for help and he says to himself, well, if I really must get up, if I really have to do something, I guess I'll do it. Now, God's mercy means that he is for his people. Think of Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, that the psalmist teaches us about the pity of the Lord. The psalmist says, as a father shows compassion to his children... 
So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And we get the sense of the psalmist that there is a delight in the Lord to be for his people. It is not a trial for the Lord or hard work for the Lord. It is his passion. Just think, a human father takes to heart the failures, the troubles, the sins, the foolishness of his children. When a father sees them, he can't ignore them. And he takes pity on them. He he shows compassion to them. And so too does the Lord with his people. And perhaps the greatest expression of this comes in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You remember that story. The son takes off with the inheritance. And think about what the father does in this story. Because Jesus is teaching us about our father. What does the father do after his son deserts him? Does 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 the father move on with his life? He turns the page. I'm moving on to the next chapter. Life goes on. Bye, son. Does he disown and disherit his foolish son in anger, saying, I will never have anything to do with this son? Is his heart just cold and indifferent towards his boy? And then you think about the scene when the the son comes home. Does someone have to come to the father and then persuade him? He's your son, remember? Maybe you should love him. Maybe you should care for him. Maybe you should show compassion towards him. No, Jesus tells us about this father, our father, Jesus says, and the boy arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father had compassion on his wayward son, and it was his heart that moved towards his son. So here we get a sense of what it means for God to be merciful. He has pity. But here in the midst of these descriptions, we must be careful as we speak of God's pity. For God can take our misery to heart, and that is a very human expression, but all the while he remains unmoved by us. He can show pity without feeling any sort of misery or becoming miserable himself because he is the immutable God. He cannot change. Even more, he is the blessed God, eternally happy in himself. And he shows mercy. As a father shows mercy to his children, while at the very same time he remains the God who is ase, perfectly independent, perfectly free. For he is the God Moses told us in Exodus 33 verse 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So if we want to understand mercy, we need to understand pity. Our God takes pity on sinners. But as we think about it, God's pity is always joined with power. And that's our second word. And this means that God moves to alleviate the misery of his people. And so the mercy of God is not just a bunch of talk. God's mercy is best understood when we look at the deeds that God has performed in redemptive history, what he's actually done for his people. Just think personally for a moment about God's mercy. What has God done to alleviate your misery? Just think about one piece of your misery, the principal piece sin. Just think about sin. Sin brings so many miseries into our lives. We can talk about it in so many different ways. There is the power of sin. And so when you read your Bible, the Bible talks about sin as this powerful taskmaster that takes control of us. It it commands us and we have to obey it in our bodies. And we think about sin and we have to say this, it is a miserable thing to be a slave of sin. And then there are the consequences of sin. What does sin do? It degrades us. As we keep sinning, it makes us less and less human, less and less glorious. We look ugly in sin. And what does sin do? Well, the wages of sin 
is death. And so sin leads us to death, spiritual death, physical death. And as we think about it, it is a miserable thing to live your life, your whole life, under the sentence of death. And then there's the guilt and the shame that comes from committing sin. Sin creates mountains of regret. When you do wrong, it eats away at your soul. It destroys your peace. It troubles and it pains you. David writes about this in Psalm 32, talking about his own sin. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Sin was destroying him. And we can say this, it is a miserable thing to have sinned against God and to feel such pain in your soul. And sin creates all sorts of alienation and hostility This world is filled of hate because of sin. Because of sin, we go about hating one another. We have envy in our hearts and jealousy, and we we look upon others and what they have, and we want to destroy them and bring them down a notch and take what they have for ourselves. And even worse, we're hated too. We're hated too. And worst of all, because of sin, we are alienated from the life of God. We're living in the far country, exiled from his presence. We can say this, it is a miserable thing to live far from God. And then there are daily temptations we face. Just think about this. There's this indwelling principle of sin in you. And what does it do? Day by day, it entices you towards sin. It rises up within you and it longs for sin, that it would be fulfilled in you. And as you think about it, this this principle within you tempting you day by day by day, it haunts us and tortures us. And we can say it is certainly a miserable thing to be tempted day by day with sin. So let me ask, what has God done for you? I love what George Swinock says, an old Puritan. He says, not only does God pity us in our misery, he relieves us. God's mercy has a hand to supply as well as a heart to pity And as we think about it, as we look at the gospel, what a hand our God has. He has worked to alleviate us of our misery. What has he done? He sent forth his son in the the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus knew what it was to be, to be tempted and tried. Think about that scene in the gospels. Jesus goes out in the wilderness, and there he is, hungry. And Satan comes to tempt him again and again and again. Just think about our Lord's life. Jesus was submerged into the misery of sin. Think about those scenes in the Gospels as as the the sick gather around him, as the the needy gather around him, as the demon-possessed gather around him. Jesus' eyes were beholding the ravages of sin everywhere he looked, everyone he touched. Even more, the Lord Jesus tasted all of the misery of sin. He drank it up, though he never sinned himself. Jesus became a curse for us, bearing up in his body on the tree all of our guilt and shame and sin. He knew of hatred himself, and he knew it intimately. His own countrymen turned on him and cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And he knew the consequences of sin, and he knows them so well. He tasted the fullness of death. He was buried in a tomb, the author of life. And he tasted the full measure of God's displeasure of sin. The wrath of God was poured out on him for his people. Oh, Jesus knew our misery and knew it well. He was made miserable in his flesh. And God did all of this. Why? 
Because he had mercy on us, because he came to alleviate our misery. He did all of this so that we might be forgiven of our sins, redeemed from our sins, freed from our sins, and all of their consequences. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20 sums up the mercy of God so well. Micah boasts in God, and this is how we should boast. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our father from days of old. As we look upon this doctrine, God's mercy, we need to say great indeed is God's mercy. Who is a God like you? We should learn to boast like Micah because our God is a God who is merciful. He has pity on us. Just think about that. He has had compassion on us and then he has moved to alleviate our misery. Now there we have a sense of God's mercy. What is God's mercy? It is pity and power. And he has had mercy on us. Now here's the question. How do we put this doctrine to work in our lives? We know what mercy is, but what does mercy mean for us? And I want to circle back to how we started, going back to Exodus chapter 33 and 34. What lesson did we learn in those two chapters? Well, as we think about it, it's a simple lesson. We saw that everything depended upon what? It depended upon the mercy of God. Why didn't the story end for Israel? Why didn't God divorce this treacherous bride? Why did he destroy these people? Why didn't he just leave them alone? Well, because of what Moses heard. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Everything depended upon the mercy of God. And it is here that we need to go to work because it's here, I think, at this specific point that we often falter in our Christian life. As we go about our lives, in all of our busyness, in our normal routines of work and school and all the other activities that come to us in this life, how much do we actually understand that everything depends, that everything is suspended upon God's mercy? And I think the truth is this, that we are often drawn away from this reality. And sometimes it's just the busyness of life. We are so busy going here and there. We're so busy with our schedules and every moment is full. We don't have time to slow down and consider that everything is dependent upon the mercy of God. And sometimes it's a matter of our sin, the sin of pride. We, we think we've done so much. We think we've accomplished so much and have come so far in our lives as Christians that we start to think that, that we shoulder a bit of this on our own shoulders, that, that do, not, not everything depends upon the mercy of God. Some of it depends upon me. We might never articulate that with our words, but sometimes we, we feel that in our souls. And sometimes it's a matter of knowledge. We've listened to so many sermons, we've read so many books that we begin to mistake our intellectual comprehension of God's mercy as a desire for God's mercy and a delight in God's mercy and a dependence on God's mercy. We think we know it and we're good, but we're not actually living in it and on it. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to cultivate in our souls the knowledge of our need for God's mercy 
And one way to do that is to go to our lives and consciously suspend everything in our lives upon the mercy of God. We need to go to our lives and work through our lives, itemizing our lives, and then bringing the mercy of God to bear upon every single item of our life. What does that look like? Well, Thomas Brooks, he was a Puritan, one of my favorite Puritans, a very earthy writer. He shows us how to do this, how to itemize one's life and bring the mercy of God to bear upon it. Listen to what he he says. It is the free mercy of God that every day keeps hell and my soul asunder. It is mercy that daily pardons my sins. It is mercy that supplies all my inward and outward wants. It is mercy that preserves and feeds and clothes my outward man. It is mercy that renews and strengthens and prospers my inward man. It is mercy that has kept me many times from committing such and such sins. It is mercy that has kept me many times from falling before such and such temptations. It is mercy that has many a time preserved me from being swallowed up by such and such inward and outward afflictions. Just take notice of what Brooks does. What is he doing? He's going everywhere in his life. He's looking at physical things and spiritual things. He's looking at at potential things and future things. He's looking at past things and present things. He's looking at normal things and extraordinary things. And he's relating everything in his life to the mercy of God. He's taking that thing and he's suspending it on the mercy of God. Why isn't my soul going to hell? The mercy of God. Why are my sins forgiven every single day? The mercy of God. What supplies my inward wants and my outward wants? The mercy of God. And Brooks just keeps repeating again and again and again. It is mercy. It is mercy. And what is Brooks' goal in all of this? Well, can't you tell what he wants? He wants to stir his soul up for the mercy of God. That's his aim in this. And this too is our task. If you want to live upon God's mercy, which you should if you're in Jesus, you must remember God's mercy toward you. And the more you remember God's mercy, the more you will see just how absolutely necessary God's mercy is for your life. And the more you see and understand how necessary God's mercy is for your life, what is the result? The more you will go to him again and again and again, seeking him is for his mercy. And here's the glorious truth. The more you go to God seeking for his mercy again and again and again, the more you will experience of God's mercy and the more you will taste of it. And that's what Brooks wants in this quote. He's reminding himself so it stirs up a knowledge in him and the knowledge stirs up need. And so then he goes to God and then he experiences more mercy. And that's how it works in our own lives. And here's this glorious promise. The more you seek him for his mercy, the more mercy you will get. Just think about that. That is glorious. So here's the call. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, let's not be forgetful. Let's not be prideful or too busy or maybe too lazy. Let's remember the mercies of God towards us in Christ. And let's not just remember them, let's itemize them and bring them to bear upon our life. And then let's cry out to God for more mercy because we need mercy. And here's the truth, we will get mercy. Why? Because our God is merciful. That's who he is. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for 
your revelation to Moses. You made your name known to him. And your name is made known to us as well. And it gladdens our hearts. And our hearts need to be gladdened. How we love your mercy. And we say with Thomas Brooks, it is mercy. Everything in our lives, it is mercy. And so we cry out, oh God, have mercy on us. May we taste more of your mercy today and tomorrow and in this coming week. We pray in Jesus' name.